0: The last time I watched it was the only time I have been blackout
1: drunk. And did that help your feelings on the movie or not?
0: Uh a little bit, yeah, because I was starting to feel sick and then I was like, oh I can just watch The Water Boy and then I threw up a bunch.
1: Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. With me, as always, is Keith Foster from San Diego, California.
0: And you are Cassidy Robinson, and you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountain.
1: And so I don't forget to say it too late. Today, we are going to be doing Hustle on Netflix, the new Adam Sandler joint. And as our streaming homework, we will be talking about the 2012 documentary, How to Survive a Plague, which we both watched on HBO Max, I believe, right?
0: I think so, yeah.
1: Tim Sale, famous comic book artist, uh, just passed away today.
0: Yeah, yeah, really, really bummer. Yeah, I mean, he was, he, I think, is a foundational comic book artist for modern comics. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, his style and approach are just so unique and and definitive and uh yeah it's it's a really really huge bummer and he was really nice when we met him um you know it was very briefly at a comic book convention uh
1: at yeah the it was of a, it was a signing table kind of situation Yeah, yeah But yeah he I did mean, like he stop was... and talk and everything like i remember i handed him my notepad which i don't know where it is now actually and uh I had him do like a little like batman insignia um, yeah, and he, he was, passed, he
0: very gracious to all of his fans.
1: Yeah. He passed the page that Humberto Ramos did of Hellboy that I had him do earlier that day. Uh-huh. And he was just like, wow, who, who did this one? And i like, oh, that's Humberto Ramos. And he's like, wow, that's really, that's really cool. I just, I thought it was like a cool, like genuine moment of like, you know, real recognizing real.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And in case people aren't aware yeah, of uh, Tim Sale's work, he's probably most well-known for Long Halloween, the, the Batman graphic novel, as well as Dark Victory, the sequel to Long Halloween. And But he also did a lot of stuff for Marvel, uh, uh, you know, the Spider-Man Blue.
0: Spider-Man Blue is one of my favorite Spider-Man stories of all time.
1: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, uh, you know, and th- I think, you know, the Tim Sale, Jeff Loeb stuff, whenever they... Re- work together was was always something special because it was always kind of outside of canon so they could just tell like mm-hmm. these cool sort of cinematic stories that have beginning middles and ends they don't have to like worry about years and years and years of you know what what was happening in canon so their stuff is also not yeah. only like great to look at and read but also a great jumping on point for people who are maybe not as like entrenched into the years-long yeah yeah comics they're, they're world.
0: great they were great, like single, single stories that they would work on together. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, the long Halloween they've, they've pulled from that book for just about every Batman movie since. I mean, it heavily influenced the plot of the, the most recent Batman, the Batman, (sighs) there's stuff that they pulled right out of the panels. Mm -hmm. Um, Same with the dark Knight.
1: Uh, and Batman
0: begins. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he's very influential. A huge loss for the comic book community today and and, you know, for his family. Um it's just it's a huge shame. And he was he was still pretty young too. He was only in his sixties. When people say they don't like comic books or uh they don't know where to get started or anything like that, Spider Man Blue is always one of my first recommendations because Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's just so good. I I think it's right up there with you know, the the best comics has to offer, um with The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen um and yeah. you know, it's it's a little less cynical than those.
1: And I actually recently read Daredevil Yellow not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Um and it's really good, you know, just a just a good little origin story or a different take on the or- on the Daredevil origin.
0: I need to I need to read some of their other work, because I, I haven't... Yeah, there's that. The the Hulk one they did. Mm-hmm. There's the Captain America one. That- and he had
1: a really cool, super stark, very dynamic um, uh, noir-y sort of style to everything.
0: Oh, yeah. Very very graphic, but uh, very... I mean, you could immediately recognize a Tim Sale panel when, you know... Yeah. Even with no other context. He, he's just, he's got that type of signature style, like, you know, like a Mignola or like Paul Pope or something like that. One of the greatest of all time.
1: For sure. So before we get into the, uh, the review of hustle, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Adam Sandler as a actor, comedian, and Do something we've done before, the overrated, underrated, best and worst picks from us. Um, We also asked listeners what their favorite movies were of Adam Sandler. So I'll read those off before we get into ours. But controversial figure, I think, kind of. He certainly had some very nosebleed-inducing peaks and valleys of, of his career.
0: Yeah, I, he's he's controversial in that everybody has a take on Adam Sandler, but even his most cringy stuff, uh, you know, like Jack and Jill and Chuck and Larry, I think he genuinely just wants to make people laugh, and he is definitely not always on the mark with that. So he's not, con- I don't think he's controversial in the way that like a Dave Chappelle has become or something like that, but... But, yeah, I mean, his quality of movies is all over the fucking map.
1: Right. And, you know, I left the question very open. Uh, So we are going to be talking about the Adam Sandler movies that are produced by Happy Madison Productions, which are, you know, generally a specific kind of slapstick comedy, Um, as well as when he is hired – by other directors to do serious work, so we'll get see the again. full spectrum here, and even a few cases where he he's involved in ensemble pieces, you know.
0: So I I have a question for you here. Um, before we get into some of these answers, mm-hmm. I was thinking about it. Is I and I think he might be. Is Adam Sandler the most successful? snl alum
1: you mean like money wise or or just, I just I career respect. I,
0: I mean he's one of the few that has kept a, an active career mm. um he can still sell a movie on his name alone uh he has his own production studio that is just continually producing things you know most of the other asset i can't think of an SNL cast member who's had such a at least such a long uh career. I mean, you know, a lot of people, you know, would rise real quick um uh and then, you know, kind of peter out like uh you know, Mike Myers was on top of the world at a point. Um e- Eddie Murphy same thing. Yeah. Um but it just in terms of post SNL career, I don't know. He I think he's right up there with Eddie Murphy because like like oh, I'd say he's
1: probably can- eclipsed Eddie Murphy now as far as just like staying relevant the longest. and yeah, yeah, you know, he hasn't stayed saying, relevant but- and unscathed. I mean, you know we'll we'll get into it, but there was a there was about ten years where I pretty much wrote him off. I was like, he, he's not interested in making movies I want to see anymore, just period. and then all of a sudden he oh, yeah, was I'm, I'm same. but yeah, and there was always he's always managed to find an audience for what he's mm-hmm. doing even if I'm I'm not part of that audience or critics in general or or whatever. But, you know, he's – yeah, I, I'd say he's managed his career probably the smartest of anybody. I mean, it, you know, not counting people like Robert Downey Jr. or some, something like that, who's only kind of sure,
0: yeah. barely yeah, a cast I mean, member. But, um, but even that, you know, even some of those names, I think him owning his own production studio is a big – you know, or or being a, a part of this of independent production studio is probably uh, a big key to his longevity.
1: Right, and if you think about it, when he made that deal with Netflix, I think a lot of people, because this was around the time towards the end of that period where he was just making comedy schlock, I think a lot of people sort of wrote that off as as like, oh, okay, well, he's just not interested at all in competing in the box office anymore. Like he doesn't see his projects as even being valuable enough to do that. But really, I think he, he saw what was happening way before anybody else. And was like, this is the way people are going to be watching comedies. It's not going to, it's not going to be in the theaters. And because of it, he's managed to make his movies. Um, and do it at the same schedule he was doing before whereas you know had he had tried to keep his movies in in theaters the whole time and he probably could have but at least for a little while but that it would have been a much harder fight and he would have been constantly in this situation where with every movie he puts out it would be more in limited and limited capacity and it would end up on Netflix anyway so he was really kind of it was a smart business decision to do that, whatever it started out as a six movie deal. And it's probably expanded on it since then with Netflix, but let's, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about what the listeners said with their favorite um, movies. And then we'll talk about our, our, the list that we compiled. So Todd friend of the show, Todd says for funny, he created categories here for funny, happy Gilmore. For and okay. for serious Spanglish, which he says gets way too little discussion, so he would probably put that in his underrated category if he were on the episode with us. Yes, I think Happy Gilmore stands the test of time. And when he first started out doing comedies off of his celebrity from SNL, there was a certain kind of zaniness that was unique about his his movies. And I think those first couple ones, Happy Gilmore and and uh, Billy Madison, especially, um, just I don't know for whatever reason, sort of worked in a way well, they, that that same kind of sensibility played itself out pretty fast later on.
0: They had a, they had kind of an absurdist energy about mm-hmm. them, like you know you could again. I, I think it was just at that time in his career he was just kind of throwing everything out there and love it or hate it. It it has this youthful energy behind it, you know? Yeah. Um, And, and I think a lot of that, you know, translated into maybe some bigger comedy risks because they, they were kind of these absurd jokes and like cutaways and stuff before that became really in vogue as well. They, you know, they're kind of doing, you know, kind of, um, I don't want to say Family Guy humor because it wasn't so pop culture related, but like the the kind of cutaways and stuff they do kind of have that a similar energy to me. Like you know, sure. I don't know.
1: Um, honestly, what it was, I mean, if you look at those first few movies, um, he was kind of like doing the like airplane top secret style humor and then centering it around a, a, a kind of more tethered plot structure. So in the case of Happy Gilmore, it's a sports movie, essentially, but with airplane-style bits.
0: Well, I think it's a little different, though, because air, airplane-style bits, they throw out every joke possible, right? To the To the point where it's hard to feel any kind of Reality to those movies, it's just kind of
1: joke machines, um, right? I mean, that's what that's what I'm saying. Though, is he he sort of found this interesting middle ground where he took what worked about that or what people yeah. like about the quotability or like the, sort of the mimetic style, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of of those kind of movies, and then fit that around a more character centric, like SNL-y gotcha. type thing. Yes, yeah, um, exactly. and you could you it, it, could say it, it, there was a precedence there with something like Wayne's World, which was kind of doing a similar thing, but um, well, the, you know he just took it to a didn't... much different level.
0: Well, I, I think the big difference is that kind of improv mentality where they didn't break the reality, right? They they made the the screwball oh. jokes feel like a part of the reality. The, you know, they sort of create these alternate universes where. That's just possible that there could be a penguin, or right. you know, the, I get what you're saying now, and and yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. It's it is kind of a somewhere in between.
1: Um, friend of the show, Sean says it's a tie between The Wedding Singer and Big Daddy. Uh, wedding Singer was my favorite for a long time until mm-hmm. until um you know certain movies we'll talk about, but yeah, I think that movie. For me pays off the most as a genuine romantic comedy as far as his attempts at doing that in his career big daddy i've I mean people like that movie a whole lot but i've I've never been the biggest fan of it I don't hate it either to me it's kind of in middle of the road for him but
0: um yeah i I haven't seen it since I first watched it, so I might appreciate it more now. Yeah,
1: maybe Um, me too. I don't know. I just remember it kind of being like, it seemed a little low energy at the time. but
0: It it did, but if we're comparing, you know, that was kind of his first sort of shift in tone, so I don't know. Yeah. That that one might uh, be worth revisiting.
1: It might be. Another person on Twitter by the uh, name Malin181 says, Hotel Transylvania, I have never seen he, any of the Hotel Transylvania movies, so I can't comment. Um, they have their I fans. Have either, People I've like them. I've heard, yeah, I've heard some good things about them.
0: Yeah, it it's funny doing this segment because there is a huge swath of his uh, catalog that I am not familiar with. So you know, like my worst movie isn't going to necessarily be his worst movie because I think a lot of his worst movies I didn't see.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. There was a, like I said, there was a point in time where I kind of was just done, but yeah, pothead rod from Instagram said the wedding singer as well. So I'll start, I'll start us off with underrated. What is his most underrated movie?
0: Well, like you said, you, you made this pretty, pretty
1: broad, um,
0: you know, because, we didn't define what is an Adam Sandler movie really one that is underrated because he's not like the lead is, uh, airheads.
1: That's what and I have uh, as you know, as mine as well. Yeah.
0: So I, but it, it's also not exactly like an Adam Sandler movie, but he is a main character. He, he, you know, he's in most of the movie and he definitely has Adam Sandler sensibility. Um, but I, I just think it doesn't really get thought of a whole lot in his, uh, you know, in his canon because of that, because it's not him as the lead. And and I think, you know, in this case, it, it actually serves him better because uh, he can kind of be, you know, as goofy, as big of a goofy man child as he likes to be. And it doesn't pull away from the rest of the movie. it It just enhances it.
1: Right. I I also think it's sort of a, I mean, it's definitely a product of the 90s for sure.
0: I watched this movie a hundred times on Comedy Central, easy. And
1: yes. now
0: nobody has TV anymore, right? So I, I think people aren't as familiar with it as maybe they were, or as maybe our generation is.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember when it, it was on HBO all the time. And I think that's how I mm-hmm. caught it. Uh, we we had taped it off of HBO, um, and in case people aren't aware of it, it's a comedy starring Adam Sandler, Brendan Fraser, and uh, Steve Buscemi. They play a rock band that tries to hold a station radio, radio station, station uh, hostage until they play their demo. It's kind of a a parody of Dog Day Afternoon and and a little bit of Die Hard with this kind of, like, early 90s metal backdrop. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's I don't know, it's really funny. It's just full of a ton of memorable parts and memorable characters. Mm -hmm. The physical bits work. um, The parody stuff works, if you are familiar with the movies they're riffing on. And, uh, yeah, I, I feel like it's kind of unsung. But is it generational? Is somebody, like under the age of 20 or 18 gonna watch that movie and and give a shit
0: i you see uh i would there's only one way to know for sure and that's to make a young person watch it uh, no i don't know huh. uh but here's the thing i think when um god what was that mo- that uh uh the pamela anderson sex tape movie that came out or oh, the show series
1: Um, yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah. with Sebastian Stan and Tommy,
0: yeah, like you know, I think that has obviously more to say thematically and morally about you know, um, about the treatment of women, especially at that time, yeah, but there's aspiring for more, (laughs) yeah, but there is a a lot of that aesthetic still, you know, it's you, you have Tommy Lee living that Tommy Lee lifestyle, and and you know, I think. I think there's always going to be something kind of appealing about watching rock stars fucking train wreck their lives. Like there's a reason they got famous in the first place. And it's because it's because they live these lives that we can never recognize, but they try to keep this sort of like of the people rebellious attitude. Yeah. And, and it always goes wrong and it always turns to this, you know, uh, 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 it never <laughs> works out the way anyone wants it to. So I, I think there is something. I don't know. I, it's hard for me to say because I'm of that generation. But I, I think you know, there's a reason we still tell stories about that era.
1: Yeah, and I, yeah, I think that the '80s. I mean, this this took place in like '94. Actually, culturally, like pop culturally speaking, it's a very weird like gray zone that existed between like the eighties hair metal thing and like the alternative rock thing. Like, and I don't think you have to be able to split those hairs to enjoy it as a comedy, but you know, just kind of fascinating that like, you know, they're obviously like sunset strip leftovers, but later in the movie we see his girlfriend at a Rob zombie or a white zombie concert. Yeah. But whatever, uh, yeah, I think it's great. I think there's enough. I think I think there might still be enough interest in that moment of pop culture, the like Sunset Strip thing, that it might still translate to somebody. And I think that the you know, if you just like these actors,
0: yeah, I mean it's a great, Brennan it's a great, great showcase movie. for it's, all of them. It's probably my favorite Brendan Fraser movie, and and. Um uh yeah steve Bushimi's great it, it also like all there's a lot of um fun side characters and you know small character parts that are just oh it's the movie's so
1: chock-a-block full of character actors yeah yeah so Which yeah, if we, you listen
0: to this podcast you know is a thing we're a fan of <laughs> right um okay overrated my pick for overrated and again this is only counting the movies of his that I've seen. So mm-hmm. uh uh yeah, there's a lot that that I missed later on, but I think kind of overrated, and this doesn't mean I don't still enjoy it partially, but The Water Boy.
1: Oh, um, interesting. Okay.
0: I think that movie was kind of I again, I still enjoy that movie. I still think it has a lot of it has enough of the adam sandler i like in it but it's also kind of the beginning of him just doing a funny voice for two hours you know i I think this one has enough character behind it that it still basically works uh but i also remember that when that movie came out it was massively popular and you know maybe it just got quoted to death for me Mm. um maybe I just got so sick of people going, you can do it. Uh, uh, but I, I don't think it's as good as maybe people remember it, especially of that era of, of Sandman movies.
1: Yeah, it is. I would say it is kind of like starting on the downward trend of where his stuff would end up later. I don't, I still think it's, it's watchable and funny. And I think that, um, I think Kathy and, and Bates still, almost single-handedly saves the whole movie. And, and Henry Winkler is really good in that as well. Oh, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, he yeah. Well, I that's the that's what I mean though. It still has enough heart and enough yeah. enough that grounds it, that keeps it from going, you know, mm-hmm. too far
1: that other way. One of uh, the last things that Peruza Balk has been in that I can think of. Yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yep. I did not put it in my overrated list only because I feel like now it is exactly perfectly rated because I don't feel like I hear people talk about it that much anymore compared to some of his newer movies.
0: I I just think if you ask people what their favorite, well, I don't know. I guess a lot of people said the wedding singer. So fuck me. (laughs) (laughs) If you ask people what their favorite, like classic is, I think this might be a lot of people's, but, um,
1: It had a moment, for sure.
0: It definitely did. And maybe it just had the Shrek effect. Uh, You know, like, it just, I got so, so exposed to it. I saw it so many times that it just kind of wasn't fun anymore.
1: Yeah, I don't feel like I have to go back to it. But if it was a situation where I was watching it, you know, for one reason or another, I don't feel like I'd be tortured or anything like that. The last time I watched it was the
0: only time I have been blackout drunk, <laughs> and did that
1: help your feelings on the movie or not?
0: Uh, a little bit, yeah, because I was starting to feel sick, and then I was like, oh, I can just watch the Water Boy, and then I threw up a bunch.
1: <laughs> well, there you and go. And I
0: haven't done that since, so and I haven't watched that movie since. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have a, a taste aversion now to the Water Boy. Um, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe that's all it is. For my overrated, I have fifty first dates. I feel like I hear about this movie all the time. Like, there are so many people where this is their go-to. I feel like if you're just slightly younger than us, like the wife, your wife's age, um, like that yeah, just turned 30 us. or something. Mm-hmm. Just turned 30, 31 years old. For us, our favorite Adam Sandler rom-com is, without a doubt, The Wedding Singer. For people who are just a little bit younger than us, it's, without a doubt, 50 First Dates. And they'll always talk about it. But I remember, I went and actually saw this in theaters. And it's one of the first movies I ever reviewed. Because I was writing for the newspaper in high school. And I went to the movie, you know, not with any kind of like preconceived ideas of you know, Adam Sandler is uh, you know taking him seriously one way or the other. I just liked his movies, and this was before he had made a lot of stinkers in a row. But I went and saw it and was like, eh, wasn't very good. There was a lot of stuff about it that I thought was hokey. I thought the entire premise was gimmicky, and if you thought about it longer than five seconds, doesn't make sense. And again, like his stuff would get so much worse. So in comparison, it's acceptable, but Actually, there's some bits that work, and I think that him and obviously him and Drew Barrymore have great chemistry, and that kind of saves the whole thing. But I think a lot. Like I,
0: I also think uh, Sean Astin's a lot of fun in that movie. He's a
1: yeah. Well, looks he's kind of the insanely uh, different.
0: Henry Winkler, Kathy Bates of that movie. Like he sure. Uh, I think I think um, I don't know. I saw this one. Uh, not too long ago, actually, because uh, Ashley wanted to watch it. it was one of her favorites, uh, and I don't know, I hadn't seen it before, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, this isn't this isn't bad," you know, and and maybe it's because we're sort of on the other side of the the Adam Sandler tunnel, but I do think it has its charm. But I I do agree with you that I don't think it um, it holds up to some of his earlier work.
1: Right. Like there's, you know, there's a, there's a scene with a like butch masculine zookeeper who gets puked on by a seal and that's the joke. Eh, okay. And that to me, that was just like a warning sign of things to come in his career. Sure. Um, and then, yeah, like again, the whole premise of it, which either buy into or you don't, I just, it's a bridge too far for me. Like, you know, by the end of the movie, I'm like, okay, so every day she has to learn she has a kid. What the fuck?
0: I mean, it's it's not that different than Memento. Like, I don't know. For me, that the premise is fine. I mean, it's very primacy, but uh, I don't know. It didn't. I I was able to buy into it. I guess. I think it's a little overrated.
1: Okay, the worst Adam Sandler movie you've seen?
0: Yeah. Well, again, this is people are gonna be mad. People are going to be mad about this because I, I didn't see the worst of the worst. I didn't see, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. I didn't see uh, Jack and Jill. Right. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't see any of those because I knew they would be terrible. I had no interest. The worst one. I think that I've seen is little Nicky. I just yeah. cannot stand that movie. I did. You see the whole it, thing to me. Yeah, it's, it's bad. I mean, I think I saw it on like TV or something. It was, it was a little while after it came out, but it's just, the character is so obnoxious. It's the beginning of him like banking on this, you know, uh, again, he kind of did it before with the water boy, but, but now it's like, there was, there wasn't a Kathy Bates character grounding it. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't a Henry Winkler. It was just, Dumb joke after dumb joke. I never bought into the he's the son of Satan thing. I just I didn't find any of it funny. I just was like it's just annoying. It just annoys me.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I saw this one um shortly after it came out on video, and I think this is this came out actually before fifty first dates even. So maybe I was already semi primed to to like <laughs> cautiously optimistic about 51st dates because of this movie yeah it's just a uh unlike you know the earlier stuff which we were talking about tries to find that balance between like the zucker style comedies and the 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 character oriented thing that snl does to me this is just a, a generic joke factory everything in the movie all the characters are sold out for the joke and, and
0: none of the jokes are
1: worth it. No, they're not. No, nothing's in it is is funny. Um, and I also, it, yeah, I, I I felt a lot of it was just, yeah, I agree with you. It's just annoying, I, and it it didn't work for me really at all. I again, I don't put this as its worst because I I did see some that came later, all right. but this is. I think that movie is like. The prototype of the bad Adam Sandler movie.
0: Yeah, and that to me that's also, like, yeah, you're right. Like, it's sort of the first one where it's like, oh, I'm not going to just enjoy every Adam Sandler movie.
1: Yeah, no love (laughs) for the characters at all. Like, they're just there to be joke delivery machines. Yeah. Yeah, something kind of cynical about it. Um, also, yeah, the world building, the heaven hell stuff, even the rock and roll stuff, like nothing it about lazy. it worked. Yeah,
0: yeah, it just felt cheap and lazy. And yeah, I do want to give a quick shout out though to Eight Crazy Nights, being way worse than I remembered it being. Uh, I watched that a couple of years ago during the pandemic, uh-huh. and you know, I remember when it came out, I was like, "Oh, it's okay." It is aged terribly. Some really cringe-worthy humor and it's like tries to be musical, but all the characters have like the most obnoxious voices because he does the voices for like half of the, the characters. Yeah. And it's just it's it it also is just way more grading than I remembered it being.
1: Yeah, I haven't watched that one since uh, the first time, which I think the first time I watched it, we were at a Christmas party, so I was only like yeah. barely watching it anyway. Um, but yeah, yes, I have heard that it old. does not hold up, and I haven't, which is a shame because I, I
0: think I think it could have. I think there was potential there, and it just doesn't.
1: For my worst, I have grown ups, and I've heard oh. grown ups two is even worse. But I did not see grown ups two because I saw grown ups, and that was enough for me. Yeah, I I remember having a sinking feeling watching that movie, just, you know, whatever it was, 15 minutes in, knowing, like, oh, this is only just going to keep getting worse. Like, Like, this is bottom of the barrel. Like, every joke is desperate. Every bit is the laziest thing you can possibly think of. Nobody here gives a shit. And I just have to like sit through the rest of this now and just endure it rather than enjoy it. And this was the point in which I said, I don't think I'm going to keep going to these until I hear something's better. I think I might've caught a little bit of Jack and Jill in the video store, just like playing on the screen or whatever. But even by that point I was like very done. Um, and yeah, I, Grown Ups is, Just the worst of, like, what we would now call boomer humor. And uh, it's just bad. It's just a bad, awful movie. Um, It doesn't even look like anybody's having fun. Uh, I mean, it looks
0: like they're having fun on the cover.
1: Right. I I I
0: haven't seen this, so I have nothing to contribute to this conversation.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, you would think of the cast, somebody... You know whether Chris Rock or somebody would be bringing some level of something to it, but everybody there is there for the paycheck. It's uh, it's soul suckingly awful. And I, yeah, like I said, I know everyone says the second one is worse, I know people have said Jack and Jill is worse. There's some of the stuff that went to Netflix, like Ridiculous Six, that I did not see. I did see one of the Netflix movies, a kind of like crime comedy he did with uh with David Spade which was also not good but not as bad as grown ups
0: I feel like I don't know maybe we should do like uh no an Adam Sandler like spin off pod or something (laughs) where we like live watch all of them and comment on them or something I don't know I just I I enjoy listening to how much you hate a bad Adam Sandler (laughs) Uh, so I I don't know it might be fun to just like go through his entire catalog at some point.
1: There's a, there's there's a, actually a few Adam Sandler podcasts out there. I I used to listen to one called The Adam Sandcast. Um <laughs> and one of my favorite segments is Did he just die? <laughs> Cuz there's there's uh you know slapstick humor which would actually kill a person in almost every Adam Sandler movie. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah. there's a lot of that in the water (laughs) boy.
1: Yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, What is the best Adam Sandler movie that you have on your list?
0: Uh, I have a split answer here. Okay. I think, because I, I think it, there's again, we left the, the description or the, you know, the definition intentionally vague. I think the best Adam Sandler movie, like, Like, if you're wanting to watch an Adam Sandler comedy, if you're going to, I want to laugh, I I want a a good time movie, I'm going to turn on an Adam Sandler movie, I think it's The Wedding Singer. I absolutely, I still think that movie holds up. It's still just incredibly charming. They find a a perfect balance, I think, of tone. Uh, uh, It never gets fully into the kind of brattier side of Sandler. Um, cause it just has a, an amazing amount of heart and pain and, uh, love to that movie. And it, it balances the humor really well. He, he goes, you know, he goes to a darker place with Robbie without becoming a full blown caricature. Like he can. Yeah. Uh, and everybody just feels, it's just a great charming little romantic comedy. Um, uh if we're not going off of like his comedy ouvoir, uh, I would say Uncut Gems um is his best performance. Um because it's him actually acting. It's him actually trying to transcend being an Adam Sandler character, and it's it- it, it was just a, an incredible movie that I never want to see again because it almost gave me a heart attack. <laughs> um, but it's just really well made. Uh, uh, and just, it wasn't something I thought he had in him.
1: Okay. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, make the distinction between his comedies and his serious work. That's uh, fine.
0: I mean, you didn't have to, I just, I, no, I under I understand.
1: I understand the, uh, the impetus of doing that, but um, for me, it's uh, it's Anka gems or Anka Jams. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's great. It's it's a, it's kind of a perfect movie, and yes, it's it's certainly more of sort of a a softy film <laughs> that happens to have Adam Sandler in it than an Adam Sandler movie if we're thinking of it in those terms I but, thought
0: you said softy not sap like n- like you meant the Safty brothers I thought you said like softy film and I'm like there's nothing soft about
1: that <laughs> no film. no yeah ben, uh, ben and uh, what's his brother's name I forget I don't know did just know the Sa- safty the Safty brothers. brothers yeah yeah no it's 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 a really really good performance it's a really great character study uh I also don't think even though it's a serious movie insofar as like th- the events of the film are serious and to be yeah, taken yeah. serious. It's, it is
0: a tragedy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it's well within his wheelhouse of in his bag of tricks of being able to do that performance. That's one of the reasons why when his movies got so bad, it became too depressing to really even watch ironically or anything like that. Is because I know he can do better. And I know that he, that there's a, there's a, he has a darker side to his comedy that isn't just making fun of trans people or whatever, you know, like I, I I knew that I I knew he could do this movie and it was great to see him get the opportunity to do this movie. Um,
0: I will forever be mad that he didn't, uh, I will forever be mad about his Oscar snub.
1: Oh yeah that was that was insane i actually forgot that, that that happened but uh yeah i think it's 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 really really good uh, however the only reason i didn't say punch drunk love is because uncut gems exists and so sure and also I... uh, punch drunk love i don't think is over or underrated i feel like it is rated exactly where it should be at this point but uh you know people who saw Punchdrunk Love when it came out, or also knew that he was capable of this because yeah. that was a movie yeah. that I, I that mean, sort of I traded like in it. his his quirks as a comedian and took that darker side of him and you know applied it to more of a real world setting. And mm-hmm. Paul Thomas Anderson is like legitimately an Adam Sandler fan. He he loves his comedies. And he mm-hmm. wanted; he just wanted to take that that character that he plays and flip it on its head. Um, yeah,
0: I I mean I love seeing Adam Sandler try go yeah try yeah. Uh, I I almost put for underrated um, funny people because that's at that point in his career he you know he was really making fun of his own career. Mm-hmm. In a very cynical, dark, angry way, and uh, uh, any—I t- think any time he can still tap into that kind of unrest that he has, it, 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 it's good because it's 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 dynamic to watch. Like you know, all of his whole career is kind of about these, you know, arrested, developed man man children in some way or another looking for some kind of male figure in their life. Right. And when, when he can really tap into that, it just really works.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think his best work knows what to do with that, especially when he's working with, with somebody like a Paul Thomas Anderson or the Safdies or, um, you know, I, I really uh, enjoyed him a lot in the Marowitz stories. I didn't love that movie, but I thought he was great in it. I it was, and I and um, again, like he's, he's capable of being a very studied character actor when given the chance to be. And when he gives himself the chance to be.
0: Well, and, and I think sometimes, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about how he has his own production company and stuff. And, and he yeah. hires a lot of his friends, uh, you know, that he's worked together with for fucking 40 years at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I think I think when people outside of his normal kind of circle get involved, it usually leads to something a little bit that stands out a little bit more. You know what I mean? I I think he tends to surround himself with friends and it's very easy to, you know, when you're joking around with your friends to not have the best product and, you know, when he's. An actor who's hired by the Safdie brothers, I think he's he's trying to pay attention a little bit more. He's trying to, you know, he's he's trying to do the work. Mm-hmm. Did you, you know, ever see the 9/11 one?
1: No, uh, uh, the one with Don Cheadle, or what, yeah, was it uh, Rain Over Rain, Me? I never Rain Over Me. Them. I did not see that. I it kind of came and went. I don't know. It'd be worth looking at. Let's keep that in mind for a yeah, future yeah. Uh, a future homework. Um,
0: yeah, but I, I think I, I think that would be more like the Adam Sandler I tend to enjoy.
1: It could be. I don't know. Like it was, it was that that movie, and um, it doesn't have Adam Sandler in it. But that movie, The Soloist, they both kind of come to mind as like these movies that might have. And I haven't seen either of them, so I can't say this for certain. But it seems to me like maybe they overextended themselves. A little bit, and people are like, okay, rein it in. Like, you're not fucking De Niro. Sure, maybe. Um, Maybe. But maybe not. I don't know, maybe maybe it's totally underrated and it should be looked at again. But I think this is a good, uh, you know, going off of what you were just saying about him working with the Happy Madison production versus when he's an actor for hire, is a great way to sort of uh, transition into talking about The Hustle, which uh, was just released on Netflix. This is a Happy Madison production. Yes, and yes, which you you
0: wouldn't know it though.
1: Not necessarily. It's interesting knowing that going in though, uh, yeah. and, and we'll we'll talk about that uh, as we get further into the review. But uh, this stars Adam Sandler as a man named Stanley Sugarman, talent scout for the what team is 76ers? it? Seventy
0: Sixers. <laughs> the the Seventy Sixers.
1: The 76ers.
0: The Philadelphia 76ers.
1: Yes. And he (laughs) just received a promotion to become an assistant coach, but uh, the person who promoted him uh, passes away, leaving their uh, fail son in charge, played by Ben Foster, Vince Merrick. Ben Foster sort of has an axe to grind against uh, Stanley and... Tells him the only way he's going to get off the road and be able to see his family and take that assistant coaching gig is if he finds, you know, some diamond in the rough, some talent to fill this spot on the team. And Foster has his own idea of who he wants and who he's scouted already. And uh, it's up to Stanley to go out there and find somebody even better goes through a laundry list of people all around the globe until in spain he sees a street baller named bo cruz played by Hancho hernana gomez the talk of the town and he plays for money and is a single father who's living with his mother and raising his daughter and is very very young kind of comes from you know, sort of an underclass position and really has no aspirations of being a professional baller. He just wants to, you know, he's, he's satisfied with making money through hustling players that he knows he's better than making a little extra scratch to raise his family, but he catches the eye of Stanley and he thinks this is the one that is not only going to, uh, get him off of this scouting gig so that he can, take an office job and be able to stay in Philadelphia and help raise his family. But it's also going to put his name on the map forever because he's found this once in a lifetime basketball player. So after some finagling, he gets Bo Cruz to come back to Philadelphia with him where he has discovered that, uh, Ben Foster, um, has put a thousand more roadblocks in his way and he has to sort of prove himself beyond the shadow of a doubt that he really does have this great player. So they have to go through all these different sorts of tryouts and, and showcases to prepare.
0: Well, yeah, it, it's about him, you know, like he has to learn to become a professional ball player and, and he, you know, he has this raw skill, but if you don't hone that, if you don't, you know, the, the NBA is a whole different league, literal, literally.
1: Hmm. Yeah. He. Yeah. He. For all intents and purposes, he has. He has all the talent to make it, but he has. He's not. He has to get the mental game prepared as well, and they, yeah, and
0: it, it's just perfecting that skill. You have to, you know.
1: Yeah. So what I think is really interesting about this movie, and why I said it's interesting, knowing that it's a Happy Madison production, meaning that. You know, presumably Adam Sandler came across the script himself and you know produced this for him to be in. Is stylistically this feels very outside of that. This feels much more mm-hmm. in the uncut gems, punch drunk love kind of world of when we see him as a for hire actor and other people well, in more auteurish work.
0: Y- yes and no. It it, it it does feel grounded, but. Um... But tonally, I think there is a lighter touch here. You know, it it is more grounded. It is a more dramatic character study, but um, it's not as intense as something like Uncut Gems. It's not as artistic as Punch Drunk Love. You know what I mean? Like, it it is. I think this is still this is a people pleaser movie. I mean, Adam Sandler tries to make populist movies.
1: And and this uh, one definitely is, is. No, I yes, agree, I agree with you. That's that's kind of where I was going with this. Is I think that there's stylistically, when you're talking about the way it's it's shot, because it's a very uh, handsome movie. As you know, the cinematography is is very considered in a way that none of his you know mid shot, evenly lit comedies are. Um, yeah, this one has a lot more mood and atmosphere to it. Um, And, you know, Philadelphia kind of becomes a character in the film in a way that he's usually not that concerned with, with his, with his usual stuff. And Jeremiah Zager, who came on board to do this as a director, kind of comes more from the world of documentary. And he kind of brings that sort of verite vibe to some of the shots and some of the scenes, scene work. Totally, yeah. Um, But also... Yeah, if you just took the bones of it, if you just read the screenplay and weren't thinking, considering it on a visual level, this is almost kind of like what you could say, sort of like what he did with Billy Matt or with um, Happy Gilmore, which was essentially a sports movie with a slobs versus snobs comedy underpinning. But this just turns up the sports movie dial and turns down the comedy dial. But it's yeah, very yeah. much a a populist movie in the in a, in a similar way. It just doesn't have all of the break the fourth wall uh, asides and and zaniness.
0: Yeah, and I mean I don't mean that as a bad thing either. No, I, I mean I this is just a, a I think of such a washable movie. It is a, a you know, a, and and it wants to be. It wants to be a people pleaser and when it comes to this kind of subject matter, when it comes to that kind of populist, uh, uh, you know, like sports movie, uh, kind of thing. My, my worry is less, is less about, is this going to be obnoxious or anything like that, but more like, Oh no, is this going to be saccharine? Is this going to go too far into sentimentality? You know, you know, is this going to be a blind side? Right. Uh, and in this case, I, I think it manages to steer clear of that. I, I think it, um, it doesn't feel overly messagey. It doesn't feel, it, it doesn't feel like it's preachy or overly sweet, but it definitely has that, that heart behind it.
1: Yeah. I think it finds a, and I don't want to say balance because we've used that word so much in this episode already, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it does. A I mean, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it it knows it knows how to be a great sports movie and it totally succeeds on that level, but there's also when it comes to the comedy aspect of it and the dramatic stuff there's a nuance to it where it doesn't become overly sentimental or overly broad it's not yeah uh, like it never it the the comedy it, it never sells out anything for the comedy the comedy's always um, you know, punctuates Natural. the scene, but it is never mm. the point of the scene. Um, yeah. yeah. It's very organic. Yeah. I would say my only complaint with it as a movie is on a screenplay level, it is fairly basic. There's not, you know, there's not a lot of surprises here. Um, all mm. the surprises come from the fact that, you know, the performances are so good, the cinematography is amazing the and that you know everybody is there to do real work and the scene work is really really good so mm-hmm. you know but you know uh, the nuts and bolts of the screenplay is kind of sports movie 101 you know if you ask somebody what's going to happen throughout by the end of the movie by 15 20 minutes in they'll probably tell you what's going to happen at the end of the movie and be accurate um but that's okay it it doesn't have to yeah, I, it, reinvent the fact, wheel to be good. In fact, I think in this
0: case it's probably better. I I, I mean, not better. I, I mean, it's so watchable and pleasing and and fun as a movie that it's like I they yeah they could have sacrificed that to have maybe a, a, a more artistic twist in the story or. Um, to try and say something maybe a little deeper. But I don't want that from a movie like this, necessarily. You know what I mean? I, I, I did want it to work out the way it does. And, you, you know, like, it, it, it works because it functions as a sports movie. It functions as uh, uh, so well. But I, I do know what you're saying. Like, I, I do agree with you. Like, I wasn't surprised by anything on a plot level. But I didn't necessarily need to be.
1: No, and in fact, I think you know Sandler taking this on on his own, you know, with the help, obviously with the help of his director and and the writers and everybody. Not like yeah. he, you know, it's a one man show by any means. But well, and and by him it's doing it under the his umbrella, I think it's it's, and him deciding to play it straight as opposed mm-hmm. to going to absurdist with it. It's probably wiser to keep things on the rails as much as possible, and to yeah. satisfy the genre as opposed to subvert anything.
0: Well, I, I think also he has such, you know, I mean, he Adam Sandler is a, a sports fan, and you know, he has such respect for it and uh, mm-hmm. reverence for it that I think you can you can see that here. He definitely loves the game, and he wants to he wants to tribute that he wants to to do right by that and i think that as a driving force it works in the in this movie's favor
1: yeah in fact there's i almost kind of see this as like a sister film to uncut gems because there was a lot of basketball in that movie as well that wasn't the driving plot point of uncut gems but it was certainly in the backdrop of the movie and you know that movie used a lot of real Basketball players in the cast, and this movie does as well. And um, so it almost kind of feels like he got to do that movie and saw what was at his disposal, and was yeah. and thought like, "Oh, cool! I could do something kind of like this, but do it in my um, way,
0: but on my terms, in in my
1: uh, wheelhouse." Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, this movie is literally. The exact middle point between Happy Gilmore and Uncut Gems.
1: Yeah, it's almost like, you know, especially after this long conversation we've had of him going from Happy Madison goofy stuff into the serious stuff or, you know, and then, you know, the dreck's of the worst comedies ever made in some cases. He's kind of come full circle and I feel like he's achieved a sort of nirvana state. If this can be an option in his production now without have him having yeah. to be handed a screenplay by somebody else and and decide to come on and do the real actor thing with with uh, a more established uh director or whatever if this is something he can do within happy Madison productions, I think this just gives him more options
0: oh for sure and it it, it makes it makes Adam Sandler movies interesting again. It makes it like, Oh, maybe I'll actually watch the trailer for the, you know, the next one or, or whatever it, it, yeah, I think it opens things up in a way that, yeah, I, I, I hope uh, to see more variety uh, out of happy Madison at this point. And, and I'm glad you brought up that it's kind of full circle because, you know, thematically, if we're talking about Adam Sandler as an artist and, and I think, you know, he definitely deserves that consideration. It also f- kind of feels like a full circle there as well, because he he over and over and over again, his movies are about, you know, uh, people with uh, unruly tempers that get the better of them about father issues and what it means to be a father and and abandoned fathers and sports and like all of these obsessions that. You see throughout his entire catalog, good, good or bad, it's really interesting to see all of that come together in this movie,
1: right? In a way that's really organic and not forced, and yeah. plays to everybody's strengths. Totally. Um, and speaking of, you know, the the cast here, really good and all used very well. Ben Foster is he's great playing a slimy, sleazy dude, <laughs> and he what? You know, this is him kind of doing his version of a shooter McGavin, um, yeah. yeah, type less, character, like, less
0: cartoonish, but yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and Hancho uh, uh, as Bo Cruz is—he's so good. Yeah, and, and like, where? Who is this guy? Like, you know, he's, I, he's an actual we're basketball dis- player, right? Yeah, and we're discovering him as an actor. Um, yeah. You know, I know nothing about sports if that's not abundantly clear by now. Uh, <laughs> but he has great chemistry with Adam Sandler throughout the whole thing. He never feels like he's been stunt casted. Um, he feels, mm. you know, the performance stuff when he has to do it is convincing. Queen Latifah, as uh, his wife, as uh, Adam Sandler's wife, um, Teresa Sugarman. I think we talked about her recently. This is definitely a queen Latifah for performance. It's the thing we know she does but used to good effect. Totally, um, yeah.
0: And 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 I thought an interesting choice. Like um Yeah. Yeah, it it that really worked for me. I don't know. they uh they also had really good chemistry that kind of surprised me. Like they felt like a couple that's been, you know, married for 20 years, 30 years, like
1: yeah, also um, age-appropriate, which is, like, not yeah, always yeah. common when when you have, like, a huge movie star. Then they get to pick their own wife in a movie. Usually, it's going to be, like, some 25-year-old or something. Um, yeah, and
0: I, I also appreciated that, that, you know, the character, they didn't, I don't know, It it's very refreshing to see movies where someone's a good husband. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I, it's easy to get you know, dramatic tension out of lechery and, and things like that. And I, I'm not saying you can't have that in movies. It's just, it's it's very refreshing to see a couple that's been in love for a long time and that they're just genuinely still very in love. I, I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, well, that's not a point of tension in the movie. It's just, they're very yeah. supportive of each other. Um, yeah. And, uh, but she doesn't feel like, you know, some... Servant character either who's just there to prop up the lead, like she feels yeah. like a real lived-in person. We get to know her in the mm-hmm. movie. Um, it's just this is just a good movie. This is just like a yeah. This is just like what movies at a bare minimum should be.
0: Yeah, it's just incredibly solid.
1: Yeah, I I give it a B plus. Like I said, no big surprises on the screenplay level. But not necessarily a problem for the movie. And also, my only, there's only one moment it was a little like, eh. I don't think cinema has figured out the going viral montage yet. <laughs> um, whenever uh, this happens in I movies, agree, it never it, feels real.
0: <laughs> it did feel more believable in this to me specifically because they got an actual famous basketball player. Yeah. Uh, you know, with a viral clip. Like, it, it felt more believable because they did have to work for it it wasn't just uh, i i I do agree with you um but you know normally in movies it's like well i'm just gonna post this thing online and it's gonna go viral in in this it was like no this is this is something they had to work for so it it was a little more believable but i i know what you're talking about
1: yeah whenever i see it in movies it's it's always kind of done the same way and it's uh well, it, you it know they a have to be device. vague. Just, yeah, they have to be vague about the platforms because you you don't know if they're going to exist a year later and yeah. Like and, that. and
0: it just is a, a device. It's a plot device. It's very convenient. Yeah, uh, I'm going to give this an A minus. Uh, I think this is exactly the type of movie it wanted to be and needed to be. Uh, I agree with you on the, the screenplay stuff, but to me that's just not that big of a problem. And And the characters really shine through. And, you know, I would much rather have that in a screenplay, uh, compelling characters that I I care about than necessarily plot surprises. Um, Yeah, I I just I think this was it was just a joy to watch. And I can see wanting to watch it again somewhere down the road, uh, just like any Adam Sandler movie. But it maybe aged a little
1: finer. Um, so yeah, a minus for me. Yeah. And this also kind of feels like the movie that I can confidently recommend to other people. Like, even though I loved Uncut Gems and Punch Drunk Love, I understand that those movies are not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And even as comedies can kind of be divisive, but I feel like this is a movie that I can pretty much say to any Dick or Jane, yeah, you're going to like this movie. Like, do you like movies? This is a good one.
0: Yeah. It's just incredibly, um, watchable.
1: Yeah, you can can watch it on an airplane. You can see it in a theater. I don't know if it's playing in a theater anywhere. You can watch it at home on Netflix. It's going to perform perfectly in any situation.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think they did a dual-limited theatrical run. All right,
1: all right. Um, Well, let's go ahead and talk about the last segment now, our streaming homework, which is the documentary How to Survive a Plague. And I will let you describe that. Uh, this came out in 2012, and we watched it on HBO Max.
0: So this is this is a, about the you know the period in time when the AIDS virus, when getting diagnosed with HIV, um, was just kind of a ticking time bomb. Uh, it was it was a death sentence. You just didn't know when. Or exactly how it would happen, but you knew all of a sudden uh, you have an expiration date. And it was particularly prevalent in uh, the LGBT uh, community. And uh, this is the story about how an activist group uh, called ACT UP and then later on a, a splinter organization called TAG and how they... Through activism, approached the the FDA and uh, drug companies to try and get them to take this disease, this you know horrible disease, uh, seriously, and and to get them to put the you know a, amount of resources, the amount of funding uh, that it needed to save. You know, to to potentially find some treatment uh, to potentially save millions of lives. And it's about how this group, you know, educated themselves into the pharmaceutical process and the the FDA approval process to help you to try and help themselves when no political group would take them seriously and and was just watching a community, uh, a global community. Be Ravaged. So this is specifically follows um, Peter Staley, uh, Larry Kramer, uh, Bob Rafsky I mean, there were so many people involved, um, but these are kind of, you know, the main players.
1: Yeah. Um, people probably know uh, Kramer from his theater work, uh, specifically the play The, the Normal Heart, which uh, was written during this time period as well. And he was uh, very involved in AIDS activism as early as you know prior to ACT UP, and then kind of found his, himself involved in ACT UP as well. And this,
0: oh, and, and it's also all put together through archival footage. Um, and there's there's a lot, there's a lot of footage of this, this time period. Um, so you know that's that's an interesting part of this documentary as well. Is we get to see a lot of what went on at these meetings and you know, have actual footage of some of their confrontations uh, with, you know, these drug companies and with the FDA and,
1: yeah. With different politicians and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's incredibly comprehensive, you know. And we Have you seen this before? I have, yeah. I saw this uh, oh. when it was new-ish. And, yeah, I think one of the most remarkable things about it on a formal level is how much archival footage makes up the documentary. I think this is a study in what a documentary should strive to be in, in that sense yeah. that, you know, it, especially in the days of like the, the streaming platform, like Netflix docs that are kind of one in a million now. They come out all the well, time. Um, and they're 98% talking heads is what you get. You get a lot of, uh, straight to camera, um, interviews, and then you can maybe find 20, 15 minutes of B-roll to stream across some things, maybe sprinkling some animations, whatever, and, and you're good to go. And there's plenty of great documentaries that have been made that way, but this is, well, this so is, sparingly this is- uses those techniques. I mean, there's a little bit of it, but only as much as they absolutely need. It was almost like a directive by the filmmakers to try and not do that.
0: Well, this, this is a perfect example of, of you know, the, the old trope of uh, writing, you know, show, don't tell. Like, yeah. they show you what's happening. You, you, you see it. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's so much more effective to see these people, at the, the height of this pandemic, you know, pleading for their lives versus somebody reminiscing about it. Like, of course, uh, it's much more compelling to to see that footage if it's
1: available. Right. Yeah. And they it, they um they have the advantage of the fact that there's tons of footage to use whatever amount that we end up seeing in this two hour movie. There are probably 40-plus hours that we don't see. Um, Sure, yeah. I mean, who knows? You know, based upon the uh, structure of the narrative they decided to to tell. But it it really does a great job of chronicling that period between 86 when ACT UP starts to 96 when we see the first effective protease inhibitors hit the markets that essentially made it so that HIV – and AIDS was not a death sentence. And you could actually go from, um, you know, high viral load to undetectable within 30 days. It covers that whole time period of, of every experimental drug they tried and everything they, that failed and then going to the gray market and the black market and overseas to try different things that we're hearing about from, from over here and and over there. And, and, uh, yeah. I,
0: I think that's what I found particularly interesting about this documentary. Um well I mean there's a lot about it that's interesting. Um it feels very objective, right? Mm-hmm. Uh uh because it does chronicle their failures along with their successes. And and, you know, I, I think the people involved are probably just as, if not more, critical of the areas they fell short.
1: Right. And you know, I brought it up for a couple of reasons. We're, you know, we're still in June. So I wanted to kind of stay on the, the theme of pride month. We talked about, um, a tangerine, which is a, a newer movie about, uh, newer LGBT experience, um, or mm-hmm. a more recent LGBT experience. And this is a movie that's kind of covering LGBT history, um, specifically gay men during the, the AIDS pandemic. But I also wanted to talk about this movie because I had not seen it since the COVID pandemic. And I remembered enough about it that when I was, you know, when 2020 started... March of twenty twenty, and we we're getting little bits of news, and we know this much, but we don't understand this, and there's there's all these drugs over here, but oh, I guess that's not working like they said it might. Uh, like it's it's all very familiar, um, and it's, obviously, it's familiar, COVID is also not such a a contrast uh,
0: between COVID and HIV and AIDS because COVID affects anybody, right? And and, and I mean. HIV and AIDS can as well. But specifically, the government was not taking it seriously because at the time seemed like it was predominantly affecting. And well, at the time, it was predominantly affecting, you know, the gay community. And so nobody took it seriously. Uh, uh, The the people in power didn't give a shit. And, And so, you know, it's just interesting to see the difference in attitude between that and COVID where the perception is that anybody can get it. So we're going to put all of our time and and resources into this from the get go.
1: Yeah. Um, There was no operation warp speed for HIV. No, it was in fact the opposite. They were, you know, actively, uh, specifically, you know, the, uh, Reagan and Bush administration were in reverse on, on the subject. They wouldn't even talk about AIDS, for the first six years of it. It wasn't even until Rock Hudson died that they had, that they had to start talking about it because it was so public.
0: Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, Magic Johnson is a, you know, a uh, a, a very well-known, uh, heterosexual coming right. out, you know, getting it as well. All of a sudden it, it becomes real. And it's just like, so frustrating.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, and we're still at the beginning stages of 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 it, but you know we're starting to see some of these same types of attitudes play out towards the monkeypox situation that's um, mm-hmm. just now getting coverage. I mean, we're still at a at a, at a point where their cases are very low, and it's not nearly as lethal as HIV/AIDS. But and then it's it doesn't. As soon yeah, yeah. as they start put it out there, and I I hated when I saw it, as soon as they put it out there, that's predominantly within uh, being found in gay men. And I understand to some extent why they have to do that, but I was like, oh, here we go again. It's going to be the gay disease and nobody's going to care until until yeah. they have to. Yeah. So hopefully the politics around that changes so we don't have a repeat of what happened with HIV. You know, it really wasn't until COVID happened when I remember I saw a documentary that was a special feature on 28 Days Later, and this was, like, the first that I really, like, learned about pandemics. I mean, I'd always heard of, like, the, the plague or whatever, but it always seemed like some old, you know, thing that we evolved past and wouldn't be a problem, and I remember watching a special feature for 28 Days Later where they were talking about the reality of fastly spreading diseases, and they had actual scientists and stuff. And they were talking about it in the context of the movie, obviously, but they were, you know, there was a basically the underlining message was like, we're due for a pandemic. It's going yeah, to happen. Well,
0: especially when you take into consideration uh, things like how, you know, we're a globalist society now,
1: Right, Um, travel is very different than it used to be. Travel
0: faster, also. um, Yeah, you know, taking into account effects of climate change, uh, that's gonna that's going to have an effect on how a pandemic spreads. Like,
1: yeah, (laughs) right. But I also remember thinking, like a little bit later after I learned about the AIDS epidemic, that we had a pandemic, and nobody considers it one. Because it was, you know, "quote unquote," the undesirables that yeah, that, it was, it that was people, that were it decimated. Was a,
0: a, a group that was easy to ignore, and to be honest, uh, a, you know, a lot of politicians would benefit from them disappearing. You know, like no wonder they weren't doing shit. Like, you know, you, and they have footage in here of senators. Uh, uh, I can't remember who it was specifically that they call out, um, but you know that specifically talking about how it it you know was a it's a fucking punishment from God, and it's like get that shit out of politics, yeah. like get that shit out of medical science, like
1: Jesse Helms, who luckily is dead now. Good for him. Yes, or, yeah, best just, thing he ever did, him. really. Um. <laughs> Uh, in terms of the movie, yeah, I, I mean, I think that it it does a really good job at chronicling this period, doing so mostly with, with through archival footage, and doing it in a way that you can still follow it as a story. Um, yeah, that's not an easy accomplishment, especially and if you're choosing not to choosing to use as as little talking heads and as little like handholdy approaches to storytelling as possible like just letting the footage speak for itself but be able to tell an overarching narrative it that's almost a masterclass in that
0: it, it is it is uh, uh, especially with so many people involved and so many groups but uh, it's very easy to follow um uh, it's very upfront it's very uh i i also appreciate that you know, this is this is a survivor's story and, and ultimately a hopeful one, whereas with a lot of, you know, with a lot of HIV and AIDS stories, it, it can be overwhelming. It can be overwhelmingly crushing the response uh, or the lack thereof and just how many people we lost unnecessarily to something uh, uh, like this. And... I think this movie portrays that in a way that is emotionally manageable. Um, like it's, it is still upsetting. It is still sad, but that's not the point of the movie. Um, no. Yeah. Ultimately you know it's, I mean? it's an
1: uplifting story and it's a c- camp fight city hall type of narrative.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things I enjoyed about it is its ultimately it's, it's a hopeful movie. It is a, you know, it's about what can be accomplished. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I think this is for a documentary. I think this is kind of a must watch. Like this is fantastic, uh, uh, movie making and, Mm. and storytelling and, and an important story to tell.
1: Uh, moment of history captured here. I believe this was nominated for best documentary for that year as well, and it really kind of just tells the whole thing really well. I mean, it, it's not a story that has not been told before. Um, there's a lot of documentation and 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 you know plays and 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 narrative movies that, that all kind of go over the AIDS epidemic. But I think that uh, this is the you know it's stripped to the bone as far as just showing you what was happening on the on the ground level yeah
0: it also i i think shows a, a a different side of the pandemic too because it is so political it is so it is so much about the process uh and how and how the political process specifically left this marginalized group behind I, I think that kind of shows a different side of it as well that, that than we maybe always see.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree.
0: Highly recommend this. I think, um, yeah, I, I think it's a, a kind of a must watch.
1: What did you have for us to do for the streaming homework?
0: Okay. Now, now we got to shift gears. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I assigned to you uh, the two Jake's. The sequel to Chinatown, um, uh,
1: the oft-forgotten
0: direct-
1: sequel mm-hmm. to Chinatown,
0: yeah, um, yeah, which was directed and starring Jack Nicholson, um, is streaming on HBO Max. Uh, I mean, Chinatown is cinematic classic, uh, so I'm definitely curious to see um, what what they did for a follow up.
1: Yeah, I I was one of those ones I knew was out there. But I've never seen it, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. If anybody has anything to say about anything else we've talked about in this podcast or previous, you can drop us a line at our email, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on social media, whether it be Twitter or Instagram at mcguffinpod. You can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at bccassidy.com You can read the movie reviews that I do uh, at the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment page. That's where you'll find my review archives. Um, And be sure to leave us a one-sentence review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app, um, specifically iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Player.fm, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts. We try and be on as many of them as possible. And be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in.
0: You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster kid. Uh, You can also follow me on Instagram at sticky note aesthetic. Uh, It's an art account that I have that I never update.
1: That is the end of the episode.
0: Guys in their fifties don't have dreams. They have nightmares and eczema.
1: Bye.